Morning, church. I'm going to take some of this stuff down if I can. The secret agent, I'm not now. No, I appreciate Brian's kind words. Um, <clears throat> thank you guys for having me. forward to this opportunity to preach. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, good. Uh, this is a day of firsts for me. This is my first time preaching here in L.A. It's my first time preaching with one of these funny ear things. It's my first PowerPoint sermon, which is not up yet. Um, also a confession, this is my first time preaching in jeans. You know, we're a little more bougie than that back east, you know. You've got to have the full suit and tie and everything. So I figured this is very L.A. I thought about wearing flip-flops, but since it's an igloo in here, uh, I'm glad I didn't. Um, but, no, this is our final installment, guys, of the Treasure Principle. And this is the title of my lesson today, Nothing Gold Can Stay. And I, I, uh, I lay no claim to that title. That comes from a famous Robert Frost poem that I'll be sharing with you at the end. Um, as all the brothers before me have taught us uh, through the principle series, you know, God really wants to be our treasure, doesn't he? You know, that's really what this all comes down to. There's lots of things in the world that people value and chase after. But God wants to be our treasure. And throughout Scripture, we see this, uh, especially in the Old Testament, this idea that God wants to be exclusive in our life. Let me see if I can get there we go. Exclusivity is really what God wants. He doesn't want to have to compete for anything in our lives or, or in our hearts. In fact, the very first commandment God gives is what? He said, you should have no other God before me. Now, I think the reason God puts that first is because any other commandment falls apart if you don't have that. Right? right. You can't obey anything else very well or for very if God is not number one in your life. In Exodus 34, verse 14, it says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You know, when I think of jealousy, it sort of has a negative connotation. It's hard to think of God in a negative way. But what is he saying? I don't think it's the jealousy of uh, an insecure or over-possessive husband. I think it's the jealousy that you earn when you've given your son for a pure bride, right? It's completely right and good for God to be so jealous and possessive over us because he's paid a high price for us, hasn't he? And he wants us all to himself. You know, as I thought about this and my relationship with God, I realized God has given me all good things. And I have a lot of good things in my life to be grateful for. Love, freedom, a lot of... Uh, you know, civil rights that a lot of people don't have, material possessions, a beautiful family, a church that loves me. God meets all of my needs. But I think like most of you, sometimes my devotion has a shelf life or an expiration date. It doesn't always last as long as my blessings do. Even though we've been blessed abundantly, our eyes can begin to wander, right? And our hearts might search for contentment or satisfaction in things other than God. And throughout Scripture, they call this idolatry. Did you know of all in Scripture, idolatry is the most discussed topic in the Bible. If you look that up, from the Old Testament, uh, Genesis to Revelation, it's number one. So, is it possible or conceivable that the thing God has to talk about the most doesn't apply to you or me today? I find that to be unlikely. You know, this is not a new problem. Let me get this going here. There we go. 
In the second century, Tertullian, he was a bishop in the church in Carthage, Africa. And he was raised a pagan and he was converted to Christianity. And he would go on to be one of the most prolific writers, uh, what they call apologists. And uh, he said this, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. He's saying the whole human condition, our separation from God, the problems we deal with, sin, it all comes down to this one thing. That's a lot. That's a loaded statement to put it all on one issue. Our desire to love something other than God is the number one problem then as well as today. So how do we get there? How does idolatry happen to you and me in a practical sense? You know, most of us start out pretty devoted, don't we? You know, if you're a Christian today, you probably came out the gate hot. You know, you might have had some things to overcome or change to get into the kingdom. But I know for me, looking back, I was pretty excited when I made Jesus the Lord of my life. It wasn't easy for me to do, but when I did it, I was full of zeal and hope and courage. And I thought, I sat down and I asked myself, what were some of the things that were present in my early years as a Christian? And I thought of some things that uh, really stand out in my memory that built my strength spiritually. Uh, I was baptized when I was 21 as a college student at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And we were a small ministry. There was only five of us there. And I was the only the second brother that was baptized. There were three uh, young ladies there and then one guy and then me. And we realized that none of us knew the Bible very well. So on Saturday nights, we would have scripture memorization nights. How many 21-year-olds do you know on a college campus are spending Saturday night quizzing each other with flashcards to memorize scripture? But that's what we did. And we, we were good at it. We knew it. And we were excited about it. You know, back then I shared my faith pretty much every day. I, I really, I don't remember too many days going by as a college student where I didn't do that. And of course at times we had to be encouraged to do so, but it was something I wanted to do. I read insatiably. You know, a lot of uh, strong brothers in my life told me early on to develop a habit of reading. Reading books about the Bible to understand it, to, to really get the history and pull out the meaning. If you get to a, a passage you don't understand or it's difficult, study it, learn it, figure it out. There's a revelation from God in there somewhere and you need to get it out. And I wrestled with a lot of these hard questions. And as I look back now, 13 years later, I realize that a lot of those practices have gotten me to where I am today. They built a firm foundation. But when I asked, I, I thought about this, uh, as the years have gone by, my uh, temptation, I'll say, towards idolatry has increased at times. My uh, propensity to want things other than God has increased and not decreased with the years. I've asked people, you know, why so devoted in the beginning? And some people say, well, it's because you're young, you're youthful and you're naive Real life hasn't set in yet. But I disagree because I've seen people baptized in their 40s and 50s who are just as zealous, just as fired up in the beginning. So I don't think it's an age thing. I think what it is, is when we get baptized, that's the only time in our Christian life. It shouldn't be, but it is, unfortunately, the only time where tearing down your idols is not optional. You know, the people studying the Bible with you, they're not going to baptize you if you leave them standing. When they're studying with you, they're going to point them out to you one by one. And they're going to say, these are the things that need to go. 
If you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And when you tear him down in faith, guess what you experience? You experience the unbridled power of God. But as you slowly start to resurrect those same idols again, the power goes away and we wonder what happened. What happened to the power that we once had? We're going to start here in Mark chapter 4. That's going to be our primary text. And my point today is holy ground. Holy ground. This is a familiar passage to us in Mark chapter 4. It's the parable of the sower. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but obviously the sower is God. The seed represents God's word. And the different types of soil are the different kinds and conditions of a man's heart and how receptive or responsive they are to the truth. And there are three things in verse 19 that Jesus points out and sort of warns us against that can make us fall away. And you'll see them up here on the screen. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Let's read together in verse 13 of Mark chapter 4. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word, and some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Let's talk first about the worries of this life. You know, worry is the psychological and physical manifestation of fear. That's really what worry is. You're afraid of something happening. You understand it psychologically and your body responds present fear. So to me, as men and women of faith, fear is the opposite of faith. If I live in a state of fear and anxiety, I'm not being very faithful. And so fear and faith are antagonistic to one another. They contradict one another. And over time, doubt and faithlessness can weaken our defenses against sin and temptation. They can impair our spiritual judgment and eventually lead us to some form of compromise. Uh, as uh, Brian shared earlier, I, I did work for the CIA. My first job with the CIA was that of a health and fitness specialist. I studied exercise science and kinesiology in college. And I have a variety of certifications back then that I had to keep up. And I had to take a lot of uh, continuing education credits and I remember one time going to a lecture, and there was a doctor speaking about the aging process and the physiological changes that take place in the human body as we age and the different chemicals that hasten the aging process. And someone in the back of the room after the lecture said, hey, if you could kind of blame it all on one thing, you know, if there's one chemical or one substance in the body that most contributes to our death, what would it be? And without batting an eye, the doctor said cortisol. Cortisol. What is cortisol? Cortisol is a stress hormone. And God put it in us for a reason. You know, when we're not very stressed, it does good things. It aids with protein synthesis and some other uh, useful phenomenon in the body. But when our stress levels are too high for too long, cortisol can actually kill you. 
It contributes to muscle wasting and atrophy. You know, your physical strength will be diminished over time as a result of elevated cortisol levels. It battles your immune system. The part of your body God gave you to fight disease and illness and sickness becomes compromised because of cortisol's presence in your system for too long. What's my point? Brothers and sisters, we were not meant or designed to live in fear. God didn't make us that way. And the worries of this world are literally killing some of us, aren't they? It feels that way. Have you ever been physically sick with worry or fear? Have you ever felt it in your bones? It's a spiritual cause with a physical manifestation. Sickness happens to the faithless. God didn't call you to live in fear. He called you to live by faith. So many of the things that cause us to worry, though, we brought on ourselves, didn't we? You know what's stressful? Sin. Sin is stressful. I want to tell you a story. You know it. Uh, Genesis chapter 25. We're not going to turn there. Uh, but you guys have all heard about Jacob and Esau. This is a classic example of how stress, fear, being in a desperate situation make us weak and make decisions that are irreversible. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Oh, I'm already there. I told you I'd mess this up. This is my first PowerPoint. In Genesis 25, uh, I know you're in Hebrews 12, but I'm, the story is told in Genesis 25. Esau is the older brother. He was born a few minutes before his brother. He came out, Jacob clasping his heel, right? Esau's the hairy one. He loves the wild game. He loves to hunt and fish, and he's out. And he comes back, and the scriptures say in Genesis 25 that he was famished. That's the Hebrew word. He was famished. And he comes in and he's hungry and he sees Jacob cooking a pot of red stew. And there's a little irony in that because Esau was red. But he comes in and he says, give me some of your, your, your food. I'm about to die. Now, I love that because it's a clear exaggeration. Exactly what we do when we're stressed out. We exaggerate. I see brothers. I just lost my job. I'm going to die. No, you're not. You'll get another job, right? But how we feel is that we're going to die. And Esau comes in and he's, he's expressing his feeling to his brother, which is, I'm going to die. And in that moment, he sold his birthright. Now, you know what it says after? It says in Genesis 25 that he despised his birthright. So what that tells me is that Esau was never really grateful for what he stood to inherit anyway. And if given the right moment, the right opportunity, he would have let it go for real cheap. And he did. For a bowl of stew. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. The scripture reads, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, before a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You'll see on the screen the word bibelos. Bibelos is the Greek word for godless. When I saw that in there, the Hebrew writer referring to Esau as godless, I wanted to know what he meant. 
So I looked up Biblos in the Greek. In the Greek, the word is used to describe a common area, a public place, a place accessible to anyone, a marketplace, a town square is Bibelos. It's common. When Moses heard God speak from the burning bush, God said, remove your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Bibelos is the opposite of that. There's holy ground and there's common ground. If something holy, it's special, it's protected, it's pure. The temple is holy ground. Only the priests can go in there and they have to be ceremonially clean because God is in there. And God is what makes a place holy. If a place does not have God, if it's common or ordinary, it's unholy and bibelos. So what is God saying about Esau? He's saying that God was not in him. That his heart was not holy but common. Let me ask you today. Is your heart holy ground or a common place? What do you let in to your heart that's supposed to be reserved for God? Isn't that really the essence of idolatry? You let something in to a sacred place. Throughout the Old Testament, idolatry is referred to in sexual terms. Adultery. Many times Israel is referred to by God as a harlot and a prostitute. Because she let people into a sacred place that only God should have been. Is your heart a marketplace where you let any old message in? Because once it gets in there, it will preach its gospel to you. And it will cause you worry and fear and stress that can carry you away and kill you spiritually. The sister who worries she will never marry and lowers her standard for a non-Christian man. The brother who worries he won't make enough money and starts working too much or does things unethically to get ahead. The teen who worries he or she will not be liked or accepted in school, so hides their faith from their friends. And this is true for adults too, teens. In the boardroom, on the construction site, at the mommy meetup group. Right? Fear makes us compromise. Fear makes us weak. We're not meant to live in fear. First John 4.18 says that perfect love drives out fear. But change that. Perfect fear can drive out love. Really quick. The word perfect there means mature. If your fear is maturing, your faith is dying. And your love for God will grow cold. Make sure that your heart is holy ground. You've got to keep it pure. Amen? Point number two. Listen to James. The second thing that Jesus talks about is the deceitfulness of wealth. And many of the brothers that have gone before me have, have covered this very well. But so many of the stressors in life are self-imposed. Uh, Proverbs 19.3 says, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. Isn't that true? God makes the perfect scapegoat for my sin, doesn't he? I can blame God for just about anything if I want to. But we are our own worst enemy. And when it comes to financial excess, (laughs) I don't have to look too far. There are all kinds of examples in the world today of extreme financial folly. You know these guys. Bernie Madoff in the top left there. The middle guy's name is Alan Stanford. Billions of dollars in fraud. Enron is synonymous with fiduciary irresponsibility and 
market making. But my favorite guy is down there at the bottom. That's Charles Ponzi. Anybody know who Charles Ponzi is? Yeah. Charles Ponzi created the Ponzi scheme, which Bernie Madoff used so successfully. Now, you know, some people have like a street named after them or like an elementary school. It's pretty epic when you have a whole genre of crime named after you. Right. That's that's pretty significant. And I heard a rumor that the, the Ponzi's, his family, after the fallout of all of this, wanted their name changed and it became Marici after that. No, I, I'm not sure on that. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. It's that Italian immigrant thing. We'll have to ask Steve when he comes back. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to James chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. James chapter 4. My point is listen to James. So we're going to listen to James here in verse 13. James says in verse 13, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. You know, God says that pretending we are in a position to plan out our lives and our future is arrogant and evil. So strong words, aren't they? You know, only God is in a position to do that. And so when we ascribe that ability and that power to ourselves, we are essentially playing God. We are idolizing our own ability. And God says that's arrogant and foolish for us to do that. You know, every idol throughout history has had its own gospel. It's had to have some good news to tell you, something to bait you with. Read verse 13 again. We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. I got to admit, it doesn't sound too evil to me. And I think a lot of us, we talk to each other this way, don't we? We're planning out our lives and our retirement and our next purchase and our next vacation and where we're going to go and what we're going to do. We say words like this to each other all the time. But see, what we do is we justify it. We call it things like wise. I'm being prudent. You guys don't say prudent in L.A. That's a bougie East Coast word. We say prudent over there. But we make some rationalization for why we're doing it. We're being careful. We're being financially astute. Or something of this nature. Well, that's not the words God chose. Right? Because what do these words imply about what we're thinking about our role in all of this? For whomever James is talking to, it's exposing who their God really is. The God that is self-made. The self-seeking God that will tell you whatever you want to hear. Sure, I can go do whatever I want tomorrow because tomorrow's mine. And tomorrow is sure to come. And all of my plans will work out just like I've planned them because I am God. Who has the power and the authority to see past this very moment? Your life is a mist. He says, what is your life? It's God's property is what it is. So it is arrogant and foolish to think this way. You know, in the Old Testament era, that kind of pagan worship and and that idolatrous sacrifices, that time is gone. But today... The self-made man is alive and well. That idol is taught everywhere in America. 
That is the American idol. You can be and do and achieve and have whatever you want with or without God. That's the great idolatry of our time. And it sounds true, doesn't it? If you work hard, you'll be rewarded. If you save, your retirement is guaranteed. If you work really hard, you'll get promoted or whatever. It sounds true, and that's the problem. It's got to have just enough truth in it to give it some credibility. That's why it's called deceit. If it, did, if it wasn't obviously wrong, nobody would believe it. It's got to be a little true to suck you in. As Christians, we say, no, 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 I'm not boastful. I'm not arrogant. I'm, I'm wise and prudent. Well, who was it that James was written to? Who was his audience? Christians. James is calling his brothers arrogant, boastful, and evil. Why? Because even back then, the deceitfulness of wealth was creeping its way into the church. We are not immune to this. And we need to watch out for it here in the church. You know, most scholars believe that James is the earliest of the New Testament books. They think it was written in the 40s A.D. Well, that's only about 10 years after the birth of Christianity. Now, the last Old Testament was written about 400 years before that. So for about 450 years, God went unpublished with regard to Scripture. And the very first book he thinks is necessary for his new young church to hear is James. That's an essential revelation to me. God wanted people to know right away, in the very beginning, all you Christians that are gathering together, you need to watch out for this. Seatfulness of wealth is an idol. And it will suck your energy out. It will cause you worries beyond measure. And it can kill this young faith that you're meant to bring into the world. The deceitfulness of wealth was around 2,000 years ago. And it's around today. Let me ask you, what would God say about your life plans? If you wrote them down on a sheet of paper and you submitted them to God for edits. How much red ink would it have when it came back? You know, a friend of mine back east said uh, to me one time, he said, Matt, you want to know how to make God laugh? I said, sure. He said, tell him your plans. (laughs) Who are we kidding? I don't have any control over today. I might not make it off this stage. It is arrogant, foolish, and evil to think that we can go and do whatever. Our future is not ours. It's God's property. And chasing and pursuing things and stuff, which will kill us with worry anyway, is not what we were called for. When I look around, some of us have schedules, living situations, obligations, and responsibilities that God did not co-sign on. You've constructed a life that excludes most of discipleship. You're trying to twist Christianity around your plans instead of submitting your plans to Christ. That's not discipleship. That's deceitfulness. You've been duped. And you're trying to dupe all of us. Are we complicit with one another? Do we pretend we don't see it? Because we're all doing the same things. That's a sad thing. That was happening in the churches in Jerusalem that James was preaching to. Brothers. Arrogant, evil, boastful. 
You've got to look at your lives and ask yourself, what have I been deceived by? And listen to James. Amen? Point number three. What is forbidden? The third thing Jesus talks about is the desire for other things. So again, I went to the Greek and I looked up this word desire. I want to know what Jesus is really talking about here. The word he uses, epithumia. I don't speak Greek. I may be pronouncing this incorrectly, but it seems like epithumia to me. Desire for what is forbidden and or lust. And as I asked myself, okay, Matt, come up with your own definition of lust. To me, lust is a desire that is inflamed. It is disproportionate to my true need for whatever it is that I'm desiring, right? And because it's disproportionate and exaggerated, it's no longer rational. For example, if if someone walked out of the desert after three weeks of no food, it would make sense for them to club you over the head and steal your sandwich, right? It would be rational. Their need is great, and so their desire is great. It's balanced. But if I walked out of a McDonald's for your sandwich, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. If someone's need is exaggerated, they are experiencing epithemia. The best way to understand this is to see it in action. 2 Samuel 13. Turn with me there. 2 Samuel 13. The desire for other things. The word other is also very important because who is Jesus talking to when he talks about the parable of the sower? He's trying to lure people to himself, but he wants them to understand not everyone is the right kind of soil. And he's telling them, look, if you follow me, there's going to be some things you have to say no to. There's going to be some other category that you can't have and isn't part of this life. But when our desire for other things becomes inflamed and the worries of this world weaken us and we begin to compromise, we experience what we're about to read here in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Read with me in verse 1. In the course of time, Abnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Abnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Abnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Abnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? He said, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, he said. When your father comes to you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Abnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to him, Abnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I might eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Abnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, he said. So everyone left. Then Abnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I might eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. 
Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Abnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Abnon said to her, get up and get out. This is a tragic story. A tragic story of desire gone wrong. This is epithumia at work. The problem with this is he could have had her legitimately, couldn't he? She even says, the king would let you have me. We could do this the right way in time. And that's the problem with desire. Desire doesn't account for God's timing. Desire says now, today. I want it here and now. I could do it the right way. And God has told me the right way. But I have allowed myself to become sick. Obsessing over this thing that I don't have. It's said at first that he became sick because he thought it impossible. But it wasn't, was it? It was very possible. But isn't that what Satan tells us? You can't get what you want. God is holding it from you. He won't give it to you the right way, so you've got to go get it for yourself. And when we do that, we pierce ourselves with many griefs. This is a great microcosm of the cycle of sin. First, you have a focus of your desire, an object. And it might be something that at first seems safe and healthy for you to have, but your desire becomes inflamed. Then your reason and your judgment gets clouded. Before too long, you will ignore the voices of truth and try to outrun your own conscience. You will then debauch yourself on the object of your lust. And then the downward spiral begins. The passion subsides, the reason returns, and you're left with the horrible truth of your sin and its consequences. You will then be overwhelmed with grief and hate the thing you so intensely desired. This is what Jesus is saying when he says the desire for other things. This kind of lust for a person, a thing, a job, status, whatever that other thing is for you that you see as impossible to have and still be a Christian. To have it the right way at the right time. This tragedy is exactly what Satan wants to unfold in each and every one of your lives. Ravi Zacharias is uh, an apologist. He's a modern author. Uh, I, I recommend a lot of his stuff. A great preacher. He said, the loneliest moment in life is when you have just experienced that which you thought would deliver the ultimate and it has let you down. You don't ever want to be there. It's a hard road back. And the consequences, just like Abnon and Tamar, are permanent. This event went on to destroy David's house. And he had to fix it. This was his daughter and his son. Now, I don't know about you or me. Well, I do know about me. <laughs> I don't know about you. If this happened in my household, I would do something about it. The scriptures say that when David found out about this, he was furious, but he did nothing. I asked myself, why would David do nothing? And I think the answer is because the sin of his son was very similar to his own sin. 
was too close to home. He had lost the moral ground to stand on. How could he go to his son and chastise him for a sexual crime when he had stolen another man's wife and had him murdered? We lose that moral ground with each other and we become complicit and silent. And a silence can set in where we're too afraid to call each other out and to address the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things that creep into each other's lives. And instead of being common and unholy as an individual, we can all become common and unholy as a church. A little yeast can work its way through very fast. Again, when I was a health and fitness specialist, a lot of people would come to me and they would have pre-existing conditions. They would have knee problems or shoulder problems. With some of the doctors there at the agency to prescribe regiments that would get them in shape. But I have to work around these limitations. And there's a term that we use in, in the medical field. They use this a lot. It's the term contraindication. Contraindication. An example would be, you know, if somebody comes to me and they say, I need to lose 30 pounds. Uh, but I've just had a uh, ACL injury. While I would naturally want to prescribe a regimen of running and, and aerobics and whatever else, that injury would make such a prescription contraindicated. In other words, it would not be healthy for me to prescribe that given the condition that they have. Now, there would be benefits to the running, wouldn't there? There's always an upside. But the upside isn't as significant as the potential downside. Now, would you want your doctor to err on the side of caution or to take risks with you? Would you want them to gamble or kind of test out some new stuff on you? Raise your hand if you're fired up about that idea. Yeah, I didn't see any hands. Right? You want your doctor to err on the side of caution because he's dealing with your body, your health, and your well-being. Right? You don't want your doctor to get as close to the line as he can. You want him to get way far away from it when he's diagnosing the regimen to keep you healthy and strong. You know, I believe there are a lot of contraindications in the Christian life. Things that on the surface may appear to have an upside, but just don't fit in the Christian life. The downside potential is too great. Kamish and I, several years ago, we sat down and we kind of wrote down a contraindication list. <clears throat> Things that we in our situation in life will not do. These are things that I can't really find in Scripture. But taking scriptural principles and applying them to a modern day setting, these are things we have determined are contraindicated for a healthy, faithful life as a Christian today. Number one, a long commute. Now you say, well, this is L.A. I know. When we moved out here, we told our real estate agent, I work in El Segundo, you got three miles, find us a house in there. Oh, you get a much bigger house if you drive, I don't care. Three miles. I don't care if it's a shack. I'm not going to spend my life in a car. Why? It's contraindicated for me. I need to be home at a decent time with my kids. Jobs with too much travel. I'm in the Air Force. I could be in the Middle East right now. Getting danger pay and all that stuff. I could double my salary. Be good for my career. Could check a lot of boxes. Please a lot of my superiors. It's contraindicated for me. The downside, 
is too great. Working more than 45 hours a week, that's a personal line I draw on the sand. My bosses would love for me to do more. I'd get promoted faster. I've got responsibilities outside of work. God is my boss. Working nights are odd shifts. Again, contraindicated for me. Too many other dominoes fall when I draw that line there. Too many extracurricular activities. Too many financial obligations or debt. You get yourself tied down to these things. They are a ball and chain. They steal your life. And you can't do all the other things God has called you to do when you're spread too thin. Not practicing discipling. Commission and I went through a stretch in there where we didn't really have discipling. We will never do that again. We will never go any period of time without having people in our life. That is a contraindication to us. This is a personal one for me. Going more than a month without studying the Bible with someone. I've got an alarm clock inside. If I go 30 days, I'm not in a Bible study. It just starts going beep. And that's not the secret chip that they put in me from work. Okay. I need to be involved in reaching the lost. And no one tells me to. God told me to. And I want to do it. Not serving in the church in some way. I cannot remember the last time I wasn't leading a group, doing Kingdom Kids, ushering. I cannot, in 13 years of being a disciple, I don't know that there was ever a stretch. I wasn't serving the church in some way. Contraindicated to me. You know, I'm not a consumer. I'm a contributor. Right? This is my church. And I want to be a part of it. I could compromise on these things, guys. I could get a bigger house living far away. I could work more hours. I could do all of that stuff. But it's contraindicated to me. These are lines I am not going to move because there are consequences to doing so. You see, what is indicated to the world is contraindicated to the disciple in the world. What is common and accessible to all should not be in a holy temple, which is you. In your heart. What is common doesn't fit with what is holy. What causes worry and fear does not fit in a life lived by faith. What deceives and misleads does not fit in a life of truth. These are opposed elements. So I ask you again. What is forbidden? Do we even agree on what is forbidden? What do you say no to? What do you refuse to let in to your life? In my opinion, anything that takes you out of the fellowship, away from your marital or paternal responsibilities, away from the mission, causes you fear or stress unnecessarily, or in any way impairs your ability to fulfill the terms of discipleship is forbidden for you. You know, as we prepare for the communion this morning, I want you to remember that God wants you exclusively. And that's what all these idols threaten to take away. He doesn't want you to live in fear. You weren't built for that. There's no joy and no peace in that kind of life. He doesn't want you to be deceived by money, wealth, prosperity. All these things are fleeting and unreliable. Nothing gold can stay. Put your faith in God. Put your treasure in heaven. Tear down the idols in your life. Make the changes you need to make to be the disciple he called you to be. Don't let your heart lust after anything that is forbidden. And maybe you need to redefine what is and is not forbidden in your life.
Never let your heart love or desire anything other than God. Robert Faust is one of my favorite poets. And years ago, he wrote this poem called Nothing Gold Can Stay. And in it, he talks about nature and how so much of what nature produces is beautiful like gold, but it's all temporary. A leaf subsides to leaf, night subsides to day. We are the gold of God's creation, but we are temporary. We are but a mist. Be sure to live your life the way God wants you to. There's no room for the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, or the desire for other things. Amen? I'm going to finish with the poem, and then we will pray for the communion. Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and the truths that are in it. Thank you for the teaching that Jesus gave us those many years ago. Help us, Father, to rid ourselves of the worries of this world, to really push them away. Help us to not be deceived by anything, no matter how temporary it might be or shiny it might be, whatever gospel it might preach. Help us to see the truth. Help us to desire you and nothing else, Lord. To always remember that we were bought at a price, that you gave the highest price for us. Help us to tear down the idols in our life that need to be and to change the things that need to be changed so that we can serve you better and more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.